0: When I was an um, associate pastor at another of our churches, Trinity Church, Brighton, I promised I wouldn't do any boring Premier League football illustrations in my sermons. But we're not at Brighton anymore, are we? <laughs> Here we are. I know you've been dying to hear them. No, honestly, because it's just been a real thing playing on my mind. Last week, the football team I go for, Manchester City, were knocked out of the Champions League. So that's you're Australian, so I need to explain these things. It's, it's like the, the Champions League is, is like the pinnacle, world pinnacle of club football. If you win that, you're, you're legendary. And it looked like, well, this is the quarterfinal. It was the most exciting match ever. And then it looked like in the dime minute, we'd won it. We'd scored a last-minute goal. The stadium erupted. The, the players and the coaches and the staff all ran down the side of the pitch celebrating. But then it came up on the screen. V-A-R. That's video assisted referee. the action was reviewed in slow motion, and the goal didn't stand. It was chalked out. It went from elation to crumpled heap within about sixty seconds. That was it. Champions' League dream over for another year. But do you know what I found myself instead of just thinking oh, and avoiding it, I found myself searching out replays of it and, and interviews about it and commentaries, and podcasts. And why? Well, I think it's because I wanted so much for them to win, and they were so very close, that I'm searching for some extraordinary occurrence to change reality, for somehow what's happened to be overruled by sheer will that it was different. But of course it isn't. The loss stands. There's no more reviews, no more appeals the final whistle has blown. And life's like that, isn't it? We've all got lots of things in life that we wish had gone differently, where we'd love to change the outcome, but we can't take back those words we said. We can't retake that decision we made. We can't go back and have another go. And so we're stuck with the consequences And for some, that leads to feeling guilt and regret. For others, a sort of prideful, standing tall and insisting no regrets. No regrets as the fallout and pain from all our actions pile up around us. And in the end, even the best-lived life, however extraordinary, however worthy the life that precedes it, death comes listening to no appeal, showing no mercy, It doesn't seem quite right, does it? We want it to be different, but it can't be. Or can it? See, today we're looking at the extraordinary life Jesus received, life after death. We'll see it through the eyes of ordinary witnesses experiencing an extraordinary event, meeting the risen Jesus. If you don't have a background of faith, the chances are you've discounted the possibility of Jesus being raised from the dead. Because that kind of thing just doesn't happen, right? And it's normal in our society to reason, well, miracles can't be tested or reproduced by scientific method. Therefore, they can't exist. But that assumes something about science, that it can measure everything that is possible, that it defines what is possible, which in itself is untestable. That's an unscientific assertion. So all I ask is that you listen to the eyewitness accounts and ask yourself, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, what would an eyewitness account of finding that out look like? Because we're used to drawing uh, drawing conclusions from eyewitness accounts, aren't we? That's what happens in every courtroom, uh, in every history book, every biography, and we tend to believe most of those, more or less. So I've got a very simple outline in your leaflets. Uh, We'll look at the extraordinary evidence around Jesus' resurrection, and then the extraordinary life Jesus' resurrection brings us. So extraordinary evidence. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early, so maybe she's hoping beyond hope that it was all a dream and things are different. But she witnessed with dozens of others the very public death of Jesus. And there were no undertakers in their their culture. So people known to her, secret rich followers of, of Jesus, had spent a fortune dressing Jesus' body in expensive linen, that we've heard about, and spices, and, get this, 35 kilograms of aloe and myrrh. That's a lot of aloe and myrrh, isn't it? So there was no mistake, her beloved Jesus, who had given her a new life, was definitely dead. But just when things couldn't get any worse, the stone's been removed from the entrance. She wants to tell Simon Peter and the other disciples, So that's John, the author of this gospel. And her working theory is that grave robbers have stolen Jesus' body. Verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So I think she says they because the tomb would have had rolled down, down a downward slope, a massive stone over the entrance, needing several people to to remove it. And never mind the fact that we know from the other gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection that they had a professional soldier on duty outside who would have faced execution for failing to guard the tomb. And then John, the writer of this eyewitness account, tells us how he came to believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's a bit of a funny account, really, isn't it? It's kind of profound in its mundanity. It doesn't read like it's trying to too hard to convince you. It reads like that's just what happened. I mean, John's saying he got there before Peter, is he having a dig saying or oh, fishermen are slow or something like that? I think he's just telling us what stood out to him, his gradual realisation of what had happened, like a like a double take these this linen. Again, yet detail, physicality that you'd only get from someone who was there. Verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So folded linen. This is what helps convince John that Jesus is resurrected. Uh, last week, when we, uh, we, had, we couldn't meet in here, so we had to meet in the pub, and a few of us were caught out with how, how hot that room and the day got. And Claire, who's normally with us, she was out from the day a long way from home, so she just popped into Rivers in the shopping center to get an unethically produced cheap top, expensive cheap top. She told me it was unethically produced, but I didn't have a go at it. But back then, linen was expensive. It was a lot of work to make it really expensive. That's why the Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' cloak. It was valuable. So that's why John notices the grave clothes, the, cl- the grave clothes and the 35 kilograms of aloes and myrrh, they were the only valuable thing in the tomb they would be what any grave robber was after. And not only were they still there, they were neatly folded. So grave robbing carried the penalty of death under Roman law. So this would be like bank robbers robbing a bank and then counting their haul in the bank and then going and getting in the getaway car. just wouldn't happen. Maybe John looking at this linen, has got in mind what Jesus had said to them in their final meal together. So in John 16, it says this, Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. These words the folded linen, along with everything else John had seen Jesus say and do, is enough to convince him that something extraordinary has happened. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. John's come to faith based on evidence. See, Christianity isn't based on mystical, unverified experience. It's based on physical, historical, in-the-flesh evidence. Christianity is extraordinary amongst the world's religions in that it exposes Jesus to the scrutiny of history, uh, to the scrutiny of reason, of witnesses. So brothers and sisters who are believers... When you are sharing Jesus, please don't appeal to people without some evidence. Evidence, then faith, then experience. That's the order. Because ours is a reasoned faith grounded in history. Share your experience by all means, but not at the expense of sharing the gospel. There's so much more evidence for Jesus' resurrection we could go into. Um, He appears to the disciples, not in a kind of um, a glowing-y Jedi sort of way, um, and not in a sort of a wishful thinking, oh, you know, he lived on in their hearts. Now, if you look a bit further forward to verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out, put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. In Luke's gospel, you can read, he even said, have you got any food? And he ate broiled fish. Now, he didn't eat broiled fish in their hearts, did he? Many of these disciples would go on to die for insisting that Jesus was resurrected. A thing that they're not even expected to happen Originally. But I'm jumping ahead into the next passage. So that's the extraordinary evidence, and there's much more we could talk about. But what does Jesus' resurrection mean? What is the significance of this extraordinary life? Our next point. Extraordinary life. Mary has an O.Z. in the tomb as well, and she gets to meet a pair of angels. Uh, But you get this contrast, she's just met a pair of angels, that's like, whoa. But then again, verse 14, doesn't read like a myth or a legend. In fact, it's pretty underwhelming. Verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that this was Jesus. Massive anticlimax. She thinks it's a gardener. But then she finally recognizes him when he speaks her name. Throughout these conversations with Jesus, we've been seeing that we're talking about things of massive cosmic and eternal significance, spoken in conversation with individuals. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, which means teacher, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, Jesus isn't a white British male like me, so he's not awkward with public displays of affection. That's not what's going on. Some people have supposed he's holding Mary off because he's like Doctor Who or something and he's regenerating resurrection power. is too powerful or something like that. But I don't think any of that's right. Jesus appeared to her on purpose. Now what's happening is Mary is clinging on to Jesus, understandably so, because she doesn't want to lose him again. And Jesus is telling her he isn't going away until he ascends. That is, he returns to the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm that's real, but we can't yet see. He's returning there to God the Father. And right now, He's got a more important job for her. Verse 17. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. My father and your father, my God and your God. It's a really short message, but it's one which would have reminded the disciples all that he said to them in their last meal together. And I recommend you go back and read chapters 14 to 17, because this one phrase is bringing to mind all of those three chapters. Jesus is saying his death and resurrection have opened up the way for his followers to have the same loving, close relationship that he himself has with God, to being able to call God Father. Two Ps to help us understand the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Proof and power. So first of all, proof. Jesus' resurrection is proof that his death on the cross worked. It shows that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. That it was enough to do the job of, taking, of paying for our sins, taking the punishment for sins that we deserve if it were not, Jesus would have remained dead. As I said, we all have our regrets. We all have our consequences of our sin to cope with in the here and now. We've all got our rebellion against God in different ways. But we don't have to hold on to the guilt of our sin anymore. We can know forgiveness for our sin in the here and now, forgiveness that lasts eternity. And it's ours by grace, not through anything we've done. It's a free gift from God. If we will trust in Jesus, if we'll rely on him to save us. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he really has changed our reality. He's reversed the decision, given us a fresh start. Jesus' resurrection changes our verdict from guilty, sentenced death, to innocent, beloved child of God. Sentence, eternal life of perfect love forever. All by grace, a free gift, if we will trust and believe in him. So Jesus' resurrection is proof and it's also power. See, Jesus' death that we looked at on Friday was a turning point in God's plan for his creation. The cross was like a full stop where sin and death were dealt the decisive blow. Jesus' resurrection is the start of of something new. So if the cross was like D-Day in World War II, the beginning of the end, the resurrection is like the liberation of Europe. It's God's declaration that he hasn't given up on the world. God has started to restore the world and redeem it. See, God promises that there will be a day when Jesus returns, when heaven and earth will be completely transformed, sin and evil banished forever, so there's no more tears, no more pain, no regrets, only perfect joy and fullness of life with God. Jesus' resurrection is the start of that. That same power that will make everything new has raised Jesus from the dead. And that same future power makes us spiritually reborn when we believe in Jesus now. That same resurrection power gives us new life, new life that will go on for eternity and it's such a sure thing that the Bible says, as we sang at the start of the service, uh, you have been raised with Christ, been made alive in him. We can live for Jesus now, knowing that we're already part of that new, restored world, knowing, knowing that it all belongs to him. Not completely or perfectly in the here and now, of course. But instead of living for ourselves, we can live empowered by the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, transforming us. That's the resource we have to draw on. Giving us what we need to begin living out what the restored world is all about. Where God is first in everything, where love motivates everything that we do and everything we say. Proof and power. So there it is, extraordinary evidence, not a propaganda-style fluff piece in this gospel, but a warts and all eyewitness testimony from ordinary people experiencing an extraordinary event. And extraordinary life. Jesus' resurrection, God's grace, by God's grace alone, our reality is changed. When we believe and rely on Jesus, he declares us, not guilty, sins forgiven, right with God. And it gives us new resurrection life that will go on forever. But once we test this extraordinary evidence, it's ever tests us, tests us, isn't it? Do you want to live with the reality? that Jesus is resurrected, alive now, to trust in him and make him what your life is all about? Or do you want to reject him? So if Jesus is resurrected, that means he is who he claims to be. God the Son, through, through whom and for whom all creation was made. And on his death on the cross he's just defeated the remnants of opposition to him. Um, Dutch theologian and former Prime Minister Abram Kuyper, put it like this I'm sorry for not said his name right in Dutch. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all come up, yeah, who is sovereign over all does not cry mine. Jesus has all authority over everything in heaven and earth. So that means he deserves more than our passing glance. He deserves more than just a sort of positive disposition towards him. We're responding to the king of the universe who gave himself up to humiliation. Hands that flung stars into space, to cruel nails surrendered, as the old song goes, also that we could be resurrected like him, able to call him God our Father. So believers here today, we don't have to wait around until Jesus returns. We can get on with calling God our Father, knowing His love for us now, knowing everything belongs to Jesus. So don't settle, don't settle for little change in yourself whilst you wait, because that same power that raised Jesus from the dead has given you new life. God can transform you and do incredible things through you. Just think of the apostle Peter, denied through Jesus three times, but goes on to found the church. Or the apostle Paul, persecutor of Christians, Taking the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Well, let's go full circle and go back to Nicodemus, who we met in our first in our series in John. A proud religious man spends a fortune and humbles himself to the work of a slave, preparing Jesus' body for burial. So be assured, take heart, look at Jesus' resurrection and know what it tells you. You are saved, your reality is changed, you are forgiven, and everything will be perfect in the end. If you're not a believer here today, can I ask you to keep looking at the evidence? If you think you know Jesus' resurrection isn't true, make sure. Because if it is true, how we respond is critical. If it is true, Jesus is is returning to judge and you can't dismiss him forever. And if it is true, you could be part of something amazing. Knowing God is your father, knowing forgiveness and a fresh start. Or maybe you're in that positively disposed category. You believe Jesus' resurrection is real, but you've never thrown your lot in with him. It hasn't changed your life. Well, don't waste any more time. His resurrection means he is your rightful ruler and you can be part of the new restored world that God is bringing, starting now. So I'm going to finish uh, with a prayer. This is it on the screen. Um, If you want to make this your prayer, just pray it in your head. Um, if you prayed it for the first time, please let us know, and we'd love to help you. Okay. Um, as I say, we have those word one-to-one books as well. We'd love to help you uh, investigate Jesus more, reading that with you. But for now, let's pray. Dear God, I want to live with with you as Father. I trust in Jesus. I believe in him. I rely on him to save me. Thank you that Jesus died so that I can be forgiven. Thank you that he rose again so that I can be part of your restored world. Please give me new life in Jesus. Amen.